right, if you'll take out your insert that says Unfolding Grace. We are jumping back into that sermon series we've been in from the Old Testament. I am happy to report that we have just successfully launched our fifth and final child into his driving career. He has his license. We are, uh, yes, it's very good. We're not empty nesters yet, but it feels like it. So, you know, four are out of the house and one's still at home, but now he can drive. And uh, that's good news. If you're a parent and you don't, your kids don't drive yet, it scares you, scares you at first, but then you realize it's beautiful freedom. So it's great. Josh is driving now. Uh, and all the time we've been teaching kids to drive, we've had old cars for them to drive, either one we've gotten for them for like $1,800 and crossed our fingers, or uh, one of our old cast-off cars that's not quite ready for the junkyard yet, but uh, we don't want to drive it anymore, so we have them drive it. And as you, if you've driven old cars, you kind of know that one of the features of old cars is that generally the engine light's on all the time. Right? Something happened. So the, the warning light on the, the engine light, warning light, is supposed to alert you that something very bad is about to happen. However, when a car gets old, things get wonky, it just, for some reason, it's on, and you can't turn it off, and it's either a huge expensive fix or you just learn to live with it. So I think it's true. Every single old car we've had, we've basically said to our kids, just ignore the engine light. But don't become the kind of person that ignores the warning light, right? So in this car, you've just got to do it, right? If, the, if it gets really hot, the heat gauge is important, but you've got to ignore the warning light. But one day you'll have your own car, and it'll be nicer, and then you can't ignore the warning light. So ignore the warning light. You can make it for now, but don't become the kind of person that ignores the warning light, or it could be very bad. We'll come back to this in a second, but it strikes me that there is a warning light of sorts that this passage points to eventually as we get into it. There is a warning light in our life, and, and we'll come back to it in a moment, but essentially it is this. When following Jesus becomes burdensome, that is a warning light for us. When we treat following Jesus as a burden, that is a warning light. And we ought not ignore it. And I want to go on to say and show in a moment, it's very good news that it's a warning light. And it's a warning of something very good that we're missing. And that is, uh, that is pointed to in this passage we're looking at today, 2 Samuel 7. Some theologians consider this chapter the most important chapter in the Old Testament for understanding the New Testament. The most important chapter in the Old Testament for understanding the New Testament. And it gets lost on us because we're far away culturally, but I think if we trace it out a little bit, it will come home to us. If you remember the story so far, God begins to call a people. He calls Abraham. He says, from your line, I will raise up offspring, and one will come from your line, and I will give you a great name. I will bless you and give your offspring a place, a promised land. And then Abraham's line unfolds, and by way of various things happen, and a famine happens, and they all head to Egypt, which is fine for a while, and then they end up enslaved in Egypt because the Egyptians didn't like the, the Hebrews, and they, they enslaved them, and then God, through Moses, led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. They, that's called the Exodus. That's what the book of Exodus is about. And then they spent several years in the wilderness before God took them into the promised land. They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, and they go into the promised land through the leadership of a, of a man named 
Joshua. Once they get into the promised land, God leads the people through a series of judges. Those judges are not, well, they're kind of like judges. We think of judges today, but then they're also military rulers. They're kind of like many kings, but they're not, they don't really have king, kingly authority. Then after time, the people said, we want a king. We want a king right now. And the Lord said, this is, you don't want a king. No, we want a king. He said, it's not going to go well. They said, we don't care. We want a king. We want Saul. So he gives them Saul. Surprise, surprise. It does not go well. And then God is kind to the Israelites, and he raises up a good king of his choosing named David. We saw that a couple years, years ago, maybe. But a couple weeks ago, we definitely saw it when David fought Goliath and rose to prominence because he defeated the chief, the arch enemy of the, the, the people of God in the Philistines, Goliath. And at that time, David's star begins to rise, and Saul's star begins to fall. There's all kinds of conflict. You can read about that in 1 Samuel and early parts of 2 Samuel. But eventually, David is crowned as the king of Israel. And his reign starts out better. He is more faithful. Now, David has tons of issues in his personal life. We don't want to just be like David. You can explain that later to your kids, but uh, he's got some issues, but he also has a heart for the Lord. It's actually encouraging to see God's people in the Old Testament because you have both heart for the Lord and very messed up lives. I don't know if anybody of you can relate, but this is David. Uh, And he rules faithfully, and God gives him some peace, some peace in the land. And that's where this picks up today. We're going to look at three stages here of what happens. God makes a radical promise to David. So we're going to look at the promise, then we'll look at the fulfillment of it, and then we'll look at the consequences, the implication of it in our life. So promise, fulfillment, implication. First, the promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. This is on the inside of your, uh, your insert there. Now, when the king, David, lived in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Kind of rest. It didn't last a long time. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What's happening here? Well, uh, David has some relative peace because he's had some victories. In the ancient Near East, what would happen, what was typical, was a king would have some military victory. He would say, oh, the gods have blessed me. And real quick, he would build a temple for the gods. So they would keep blessing him. Now, I don't know if this is what David's doing, but that's certainly a cultural background. A victory, oh, the gods have blessed me. Let me do something really quick that ensures that they will bless me in the future. Uh, Again, maybe David's not thinking that way, but that is what all the surrounding nations would have been thinking. But the Lord had said in Deuteronomy, when you go into the promised land, I will choose a place for you to build a temple for me, a house for me. I will choose that. I will tell you when and where when you go in there. And David's like, I think God's telling us right now. The Lord wasn't doing that. But he's like, I think it doesn't seem right. I live in a house, and God's uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence, is in a tent. Let's build a house for the Lord. And Nathan's like, that's a great idea, David. Nathan's the main prophet. It seems good to you. It seems great to me. Um, the Lord, however, is like, not so fast. Verse 4, the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, uh, would you build me a house to dwell in? Or probably better in English is like, why would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God says, basically, you're all zealous, that's cool, but I'm not asking you to do this. You're telling me that this is what's going to happen. I've not asked you. And I was very clear in Deuteronomy 12. I said, I will choose and I will tell you and I will have you do this. And now you're saying, no, this is it. Um, so the Lord's saying, we're going to slow things down here. But what's really going on also is God is calling David into a deeper way of understanding his grace. First, he says, I want, David, I want to, you to remember the story you're in. Remember the promise God made to Abraham, I'll give you a great name and make your place great, give you a place to live. Verse 8, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So that's the first part of the Abrahamic promise. I will make your name great. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So there's the place. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So I just want to look at that last sentence one more time. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This might get by us as a casual reader. David, you say you want to build a house for me? That's interesting. Here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm building a house for you. I've blessed you and maybe you're trying to build something for me to ensure my future goodness to you, here's what I want you to see from me to you, future goodness without the house. I will build a house for you. And we find out that that's David's dynasty. But God is saying, David, I will build for you, and then you can build for me. It's the way of grace. God initiates. He, he loves, and then we respond. David, it seems like David's saying, I will do this, and then it will ensure my goodness to you. And God's saying, I'm going to be good to you because that's who I am. I've made promises to you. This is my covenant promise to do good to you. I will bless you, and then you can build a house for me. I initiate. And so, and he reminds David, like, David, you were a farmer. You were a sheep herder. You were in the pasture. You were nothing. And I raised you up and made you prince of Israel. Do you think I'm not intending to do good to you? I brought you from nothing up to this. You don't have to build a temple for me to do good to you. I've covenanted to do good to you. Sometimes I know that we wrestle. We struggle thinking, is God committed to doing good to me as his, as his son or daughter? Because we see all kinds of things in our life that would be contraindicators to that. David could have looked around and seen all these enemies on the horizon. Like, I, don't, I don't know. We can see all these things in our life and say, I don't know, is God committed to doing good to me? If you're here and you trust in Jesus, what's also true about you is that one time in your life, you were 
dead in your trespasses and sins and blind. You were dead. I was dead. And God, through his spirit, came into my life, into your life, opened eyes, caused us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and say, Jesus is beautiful. I want him. I want to follow him. I need him. I need forgiveness. I need my guilt removed. I need my shame covered. That He's done that for you. Like he's already brought us from death to life. How would he not be committed to doing good to us? Sometimes we're worried and we're trying to do things to secure God's favor. We need to hear, let me build a house for you. Let me be- I'll love you first. You respond to love. It's just what 1 John 4 says. We love because he first loved us. So David is trying to sort of seize life here perhaps and to control it, to manage it. And the message of the Lord to David, even in the Old Testament, is my way of grace is giving. You receive with open hands. I build a house for you. And then you can build a house for me. That's the order. Okay, now here's the main content of what he says to David. These are four verses that sort of shape the rest of the Bible and um, the rest of history, universal history. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, comma, David, you will die. Your kingdom is not going to last forever. Your, re- your personal reign is not. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this, gets, this is a little confusing, especially to these first hearers. Offspring is a plural noun. It's a plural singular. It means it could be collective. It could be many. And then it says, I will raise up offspring, many, but then I will establish his kingdom. And I'm sure David's like, great, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, so multiple, one, what's happening? Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Who? Well, he, the offspring of some sort. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom, not for 10 years, not for a whole generation, forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So it's not just this formal king-to-king relationship. There's this affection the Lord will have for the offspring, plural, singular, whatever. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So, David, your offspring are going to do things that are sinful. I will bring corrective action into their life, right? But it's, it's, it's loving corrective, corrective action. Probably the rod of men means I will allow their enemies to grow strong against them. Verse 15, but even though there's corrective action, verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So I will bring discipline, but I'm not taking away my love. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's that's the biggest promise God can make. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then verse 18, then the king David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? that you would have brought me thus far. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind 
O Lord God. Let me translate that. David's like, whoa. Who, who am I? You did bring me. For, I was a sheep herder. And I'm the prince of Israel, the king of Israel. And you're making a promise that somehow my descendants will rule, not for a generation, but forever? You've spoken about my house for a long time and for all mankind. David has some sense like this has implications for everyone. So the natural question is like, who is this? Who is it? And you have to remember this principle in the Bible, right? The longer the story goes, the more light there is. We call it progressive revelation or unfolding revelation. So at this point in the story, right, if you know where you are in the Bible storyline, it's not very far through. So they don't know very much yet. This is 1,000 B.C. So this offspring, they're like, ah, I'm not quite sure. Is it Solomon? David has a son named Solomon. Oh, he grows up, and he's a king, and he's got, he bears a lot of these marks. But then he's kind of bad in some ways, too, and he, does, he ends up doing everything kings should not do, according to Deuteronomy 17. So somehow Solomon's both wise and terribly foolish all at the same time. But he does build a temple for the Lord. But eventually it becomes clear that Solomon is not the one whose kingdom will last forever. And then from that line come many kings. If you read through the Bible, names that you would know like Uzziah, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah. Those were the decent ones. Everybody else was terrible. So the kingdom split. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks. The northern kingdom, Israel, was like way off the rails. They weren't even following Yahweh. And then the southern kingdom was supposed to be faithful, and almost all of the kings were not. They were not. They committed iniquity, right? And oftentimes that is... um, has to do with false worship. They refuse to tear down the high places. If you read that, that's what that's talking about. Those are pagan gods being brought into Israel that the kings also worshipped and had people worship because it's very hard for leaders to actually trust only in the Lord. It's all, 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 leaders are always just trying to get like one other thing. Like, okay, if Yahweh doesn't deliver, maybe this God of the Canaanites will. So, but this dynasty of David's was long the direct descendants. In that part of the world, a long dynasty would have been about 100 years because everybody was murderous. I mean, you can't keep, you can't keep the family alive, right? They just kill each other. It's terrible. Um, the, the 18th dynasty of Egypt was 250 years. So that was the longest known. The Davidic dynasty, actually, of, of people, direct descendants, was over 400 years. So it was a very long dynasty, but far short of forever. And the promise is, Forever. So what's happening here? Well, there's a, the Davidic dynasty comes to a close because the kings are terrible. The, the worst one was named Manasseh. And this is probably, this was the final straw. When the God took the people into the promised land, he kept saying, do not do what the Canaanites do. Which essentially, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, false worship and sacrificing their children. Because they thought, well, the, my, my child is the most valuable thing in my life. If I give this child over as a sacrifice, then that God will know that I'm really serious and this God will protect me. And the Lord's like, do not do this to my kids. Because the Canaanites do this. And it's terrible. And if, if you begin to adopt these practices, what's happening to the Canaanites will happen to you. So they don't tear down the high places. The last straw is Manasseh. Let me just read to you from 2 Kings 21. Manasseh built altars, high places of false worship, in the temple of the Lord. 
So, yeah, just right there. I know this is Yahweh's place, burn offerings to him, sacrifice to him, but let's worship Baal and Chamoth and um, Molech and all this kind of stuff. And it gets worse. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, those communicated with the dead. And it looks like he burnt his son as an offering in the temple of the Lord. And God says, I am finished with this people. So the Babylonians invade, wipe away the Israelites. Everything's a just smoldering pile of rubble. The Davidic line has been cut off and killed and there's only one, like, there's one king left. He's a former king that got deposed. He was a weak king. He, wasn't a, he was a bad king. He was no good. His name was Jehoiakim, and he was in prison in Babylon. He was a faithless king. So it looks like everything's done. And then the very last three verses of the book of 2 Kings, the closing of the history book, the end of King, 2 Kings 25, it says, Jehoiakim was released from prison and invited to the king of Babylon's table the rest of the days of his life. So it's like everything's about to fade to black, and it does. And it's like in a movie, you know, he's like, then you hear a heartbeat. Boom. One little glimpse of life. At the very end, this down, 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 little tiny upward trajectory, and then darkness. And silence for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years. Silence. But during this time, from the time of David on, this progressive understanding, and it became clear that this, these kings of Israel are, are not what we're looking for. The Israelites began to understand this in more messianic terms. Like there's one coming who won't be like these kings. In fact, one very famous passage we say almost every Christmas is about this. Isaiah 9, 6. This should sound familiar perhaps. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So they began to understand that there's a messianic king coming, unlike these faithless kings who didn't serve us and didn't serve the Lord but served themselves. Psalm 110 is another example. Daniel 7, that we did for our call to worship, is a famous place. Psalm 110, I put this in your insert. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And this is a, if you want to circle this verse here, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. But then, 500 years of silence. But that, remember, right before it faded to black, there was a little sense of a heartbeat. 500 years go by, and now, Roughly 1,000 years from the first announcement to David about someone sitting on this throne, there's another announcement. This time not to a king, but to a 16-year-old 
virgin Jewish girl named Mary. Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin whose name was Mary. And the angel said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And the whole ministry of Jesus then is about Jesus walking into this and people coming to grips with this. And now we have the privilege of history. We can look back and see this. Now, at the time, they wouldn't have seen it so clearly. Mary would be like, what did I just hear? But let's look at that passage in 2 Samuel 7. Again, verses 12 through 16 in light of Jesus, right? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. Oh, it makes sense. There were multiple offspring, but one who had his kingdom established. And so in Matthew and um, Luke, there's genealogies of Jesus showing he comes from Abraham. He comes from Abraham through David. He is the one in David's line. He shall build a house for my name, okay? I'm going to press your theology just for a second. What is the house that Jesus builds in the name of the Lord? Yeah, it's in your chair, right? If you're in Christ, the one sitting in your chair is part of that house. First Peter says you are stones knit together as this living temple of God. This is what Jesus has done. He built a house that expands and expands and expands and has no end. That's what this was pointing to ultimately. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Talk about that in a second. Verse 14, I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me as a son. Check. We got that one. Father, son, Jesus. Okay. When he commits, this is interesting. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And we say, okay, what's up with that? Jesus committed no iniquity. Well, this is true. Do we not know the role of this king for his people? Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The the chastisement that brought us peace was placed on him, and with his stripes or wounds we are healed. Same language. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He didn't commit iniquity, but we did. And he was punished in our place. That's what this king undergoes right here. The ultimate king, Jesus, for us. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Yes, Jesus, the steadfast love did not depart from him. In fact, it came through him to us. Verse 16, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this began to dawn on the people in Jesus' time, and it became crystal clear for the apostles at the resurrection and the ascension. This is where it crystallizes for them, and I want to say for us. Okay, so promise to David, fulfillment in Jesus. 
consequence to you and me. Acts chapter 2. Brothers, so this is the Apostle Peter, after Christ had been resurrected, ascended to the throne and sent the Spirit. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter saying, David saw it. David maybe didn't know clearly that he saw it, but he saw it. So that there was one come after him and sit on the throne of heaven. And Peter's saying, this is it. This is it. And in the expansion of his kingdom, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Right? So there's, we have this expansion in length, right? expansion forever. This eternal kingdom. So it wasn't unbroken, right, from the time of David. 400 years his descendants ruled kind of badly, and then gone, right? But right before that, it faded to black, you saw a heartbeat, and now exploding into the world is Jesus who, begin, who lives and dies, and the moment he, he walks out of the tomb, he ministers publicly for 40 days, he ascends to the throne, and the moment he takes his seat on the throne next to the Father, his reign begins, his kingdom begins. And in this kingdom now, he is patient. His way of ruling is invitational. Come, receive the life that I offer you. Why is he so patient? Why isn't he more anxious about people recognizing his rule? Because he's actually in charge. Like he doesn't, he is the king. He doesn't need to tell everybody about it. He doesn't need to be gripping like, oh, they're not receiving my kingship. He's like, I want you to come and receive it. It's, his kingship isn't threatened by people not receiving it. I was in a Kohl's the other day, and I was looking for something else. But I walked by a shirt that said, I realized this is a, could be a dangerous illustration. You may have this shirt if you have it. I'm sorry, it's just an illustration. It said, it's a T-shirt that said, smart, strong, confident woman. Now, I'm all for smart, strong, confident women. I think I've raised three of them. I married one. I'm all for it. But I don't think if you are, you need to say it on a T-shirt. In fact, if I saw it on a T-shirt, I would think, no, I'm not so sure about that. Because if you're really that confident, why do you have to tell everybody that's what you are? It just seems to me. Now, there could be guy T-shirts like that too. Like, I just wasn't seeing that at Kohl's. I'm sure there are. Um, If you are actually authoritative, you don't need to tell everybody you're authoritative. God, Jesus is the ultimate authority. And so he invites people to see it. He's not threatened by the world's not seeing or submitting to his authority. So he said, I want you to come. I'm going to invite you in. Let me me make a life for you. Let me gift a life to you that I've already purchased. His reign, and, and by the way, his reign doesn't start in the future. It's not a future reality. 
The moment Christ broke the power of death and sat down at the right hand of God, that reign began. It's not a situation that changes in the future. It gets more intense in the future. What does this mean for you if you're in Christ? It means that we, can, we actually have something to attach our hope to and our confidence and our attitude. We have every reason to be the most glad people on earth. We can be the gladdest people in the world because we serve a king whose reign has already begun and cannot end. It's, it's expansive in length. It's expansive in depth as well. He pours out his spirit to build this house, you all. And I want to come back here to the warning light. Psalm 10 gives us a little hint of it. Psalm 10, by the way, is the most referenced Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The most referenced one. And in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. That is a, that is a passage pregnant with meaning. And I think it, if, it does get to the motivational center of the gospel if we're patient with it. Offer them in Jesus' reign, it's characterized by this. His people offer themselves freely. That means gladly, without compulsion, not grudgingly, like, okay, I'll have to obey the Lord. Not bartering God for somebody, secret, something hope, secretly hoping like, well, if I do this for Jesus, maybe he'll do this for me. No. When we're, when we're not offering ourselves freely, that's a warning light saying we're missing something. And that's good news because it means there's something about Jesus that I'm not seeing that's so good as I see it and when I see it, my response is, I want to offer myself freely to this one. And so when, we're, when I know that I'm grudging, I'm like, I don't want to do this, or I'm secretly complaining, or I'm just like, I'm, 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 I'm playing with the temptation, that's a warning light going off saying, Roger, you're missing something, you fool. There's something so good about Jesus, if you looked at it, you would say, wait, that's what I want to do. We just sang in the song, his, his yoke is easy, his burden is not hard, it's good. Um, and I think it has to do with just seeing what did this king do with his power? Did he serve himself? No. He took all that authority in all of the universe, in all of history, and he served you, and he served me. This king gave his life for his people. When we see that clearly, and we see his authority clearly, we can say, how can I not, how can I not serve him? He brought me from death to life. How can, I, how can I think that he's not committed to doing good to me? He has given himself for me. He will freely give himself to me. And we serve him gladly in holy garments. Now, if you trace the meaning of that through Zechariah into the New Testament, into the book of Revelation, you see, oh, this is the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. We, as it were, stand clothed in his righteousness in his life. He lived the life we ought to have lived. He died in our place, and he gives his life to us in our union with him. So we, you, if you're in Christ, you may have all kinds of things going on in your life. Undoubtedly, you do. I certainly do. That may be true, and here's what's also true. You are, you are absolutely complete in him. You are complete. 
And we spend a lot of our life trying to manage the future, hold on to the future, get this, not get that, whatever. And we can relax. We can receive the life he gives to us that the king has purchased for his people. And when we see that, the, the only reasonable response is, how do I serve this one? He's so committed to doing good to me. This is a expansive in, in uh, depth, this reign, and expansive in breadth. And we're just going to close by saying, he, you know, Peter references here at the end of Acts 2, he's been made both Lord and Christ. Those are two phrases of, um, I mean, rulership, messianic kingship, but one would have particularly connected with Gentiles, Lord. The one, you know, we're supposed to say Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord now, and the, the messianic king, Christ. And you can look in Romans 1, it unpacks this more, but David saw, like, the implications of this are for all mankind. And Peter's saying, this means he's Lord in Christ. He's for the Gentiles and the Jews. So if you're wondering, like, if you were in that first century, like, you could say, how can I be sure that this is the case, that this king has served me and he promises to do good to me? You could, done, you could have run a test. You could have had a, an objective measure. You could say, okay, well, if his name is named in the nations sometime in the future and not just with the Jews, then this must be true because this is what he's purchased. Now, they wouldn't have known that back in the first century because there's all Jewish people there, but not many Jewish people here. You are the living embodiment that this truth has to be true because it's gone to the nations. You, most of us here, are Gentiles by, by birth. And yet, because you believe in Christ, this is evidence that this king both gave himself for you and intends to do it over and over and over again. One of the ways we connect with that on a weekly basis is in the communion table, where we say this looks back, it looks forward, and it looks in real time to the present as the seated, ascended Christ serves us with his grace. If you're in Christ Jesus, this table is open to you. We say taking communion is the declaration that we receive and rest on Jesus alone and that we want his kingship in our life. If that's you, I want to invite you to the table. I will pray and then invite you to um, come go to the back of the sanctuary, uh, kind of on the outside by the curtains and come from the back. I, I can't talk right now. Stop preaching. Now I can't say anything. Go get the communion elements after I pray somehow and bring them back to your seat and we'll all take together, okay? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for, uh, thank you for your commitment to work through faltering lips and frail minds and that your kingship is in no way dependent on our response or our apprehension to it. You are king. May we have a deep fresh appreciation for that reality this week and right now as we come to the table. In your name.